Busy semester? <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm excited to continue through the book of Hebrews with you all. Um, I got to commend you guys. Hebrews is a deep book. Um, there's quite a bit of doctrine and some pretty hefty Old Testament stuff you kind of need to know, but I just want to commend you guys and encourage you guys. It's really awesome that we can work with uh, you as students who are super passionate about God's Word and are willing to dive into the deeper parts of the Bible. Um, you guys definitely take the Word of God seriously, and I've seen you guys in that, and so just want to encourage you guys in that to continue to be passionate about God's Word um, this semester. I know sometimes a lot of the stresses of the semester can kind of crowd out you know, that discipline of Bible reading and going to God's Word, but I just want to encourage you guys uh, to continue to go to it so you can find uh, the hope uh, that rests in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be continuing on in Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 10 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be in verses 1 uh, through 18. So we're going to go ahead and read the entirety of the passage all at once. Um, and so starting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, I, I believe it might be on version as well, the verses. So if you don't have your Bible with you and you have your phone, uh, you can go and turn to that. So, okay, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you call us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, we have before us and have read your truths, and we pray that the Holy Spirit uh, would bring to light in our hearts and in our minds uh, the beauty and the truth in this passage, that we might continue to follow you in obedience, to be changed from the inside out according to your will. Lord, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, recently, there's been a kind of a 
kind of my wife and I have been interested in watching YouTube videos like Fail Army. Uh, that's kind of been a ritual every night just to watch uh, those kind of videos. And so I don't know how it started, but I decided that we should watch the old American Idol auditions. So I don't watch American Idol anymore. Uh, I don't like the judges, but back in the day we used to sit down, I think it was Thursday nights or something before the streaming was a thing. And you sit down, you'd have the three judges, Simon and I think Randy and Paula were like the original, if you guys ever watched those. Um, and we like to watch the worst auditions of American Idol. I never really followed after the show because the first few weeks is where it was at. It was pretty hilarious. And uh, we were kind of watching through some of them. And you had some people who were just absolutely insane. Like, you need people get in front of public television. It, you know, everything comes out. Um, and so there was a bunch of them that were just absolutely hilarious. You know, we love, it just cracks us up. Some of them obviously wanted their five seconds of fame, right? But then there were those, and it, it was funny, but it was kind of also heartbreaking because you had these people who go on there, and they're just utterly convinced, okay, that they are amazing singers. They've spent years, okay, thinking they're really good, and their parents and their friends and others have told them, yeah, you're going to be a great singer. I mean, the money, the time, the investment, investment the emotional, you know, <laughs> physical energy that was put into them singing, and you're like, man, they... This is what they're, this is their shot, you know? And they go up there and they sing, and it's like, you know, it's not like, oh, you know, you can sing in the background Sunday morning type of stuff. It's, oh my goodness, like, you know, you want deaf people would not even want to hear you sing. You're that bad, okay? And so, like, it's, it's heartbreaking, and then the judges are just like, within three minutes, it's complete, their, their whole life is just like completely destroyed and traumatized because come to find out, they're really not that great at singing. And the judge is like, you know, Simon's like, ah, I was the worst performance I ever heard, you know? And then Randy's like, dog, like, man, you're just not there, you know? And then, of course, what happens is instead of taking that, right, the trauma is just too much for them. They flip and they say, you don't know what you're talking about. I am a good singer. Everyone's told me I'm a good singer. You, you don't know how to sing. You're, you vocal performers and judges, you don't know anything about singing. And they storm out the door unwilling to listen to the truth that they're really not that great, right? Because of all the time, all the investment they poured into this, proving themselves, and then coming to the realization they're not good enough. It's pretty heartbreaking. I mean, it's, you know, the videos are funny, but when you think about it, it's like, wow, what a bummer, right? And I gotta be honest, I think as we read through Hebrews, right, the pastor who's writing this letter to them, this is kind of a sermonic letter he's telling to the people, is that your sacrificial system, your, your works and these this rituals of the Old Testament, they can't save you. So you've got to imagine, we've talked about these people who spent years in the synagogue, who've raised up their kids in the synagogue, who've had these relationships in this family that they grew up in this, this culture and this tradition, right? And then the pastor is telling them, look, those things can't save you. Those sacrificial systems, those things that you gave to God, those burnt offerings, those sin offerings, they can't redeem you. It's not good enough. And some of them are tempted to think, no, I don't want to hear that. I want to go back to this. Maybe because of cultural pressure, because all the, the investment, the time, and the energy that they poured into it, realizing it's not good enough. And some of them can't handle that truth. This sacrificial system, I think, that we see in Hebrew speaks to something that is deeply ingrained in the human psyche, and it's a universal experience. It's this idea, and we've talked about it before, of trying to prove ourselves, trying to justify ourselves. I think guilt is very much a universal experience. Now, we may disagree about what causes guilt or what should prompt guilt or how to deal with guilt, but nonetheless, everyone experiences this, 
is why the sacrificial system is not only what you find in the Israelite tradition, but what's interesting is that you find it across all other cultures as well. Think about the Greeks and the Romans who would offer, you know, incense or burnt offerings or whatever to their gods to appease them or to get them to do what they want them to do. I think about in Mesopotamia, right? Maybe it was derived from a perversion of, you know, the gospel accounts in Genesis, but people would even be so desperate as to sacrifice their own children so that way Baal or other gods, right, could bring rain down upon the land. Or even in pop culture, right? We watch King Kong, which is like, you know, when the you know, greatest blockbusters ever hit the screen, right? And what are the savages on the island doing but sacrificing a woman to appease the monkey god, right? I mean, you find across all different cultures this idea of sacrificing. Even in the, in the Old Testament, even before the Levitical system, you find that Cain and Abel, right, brought an offering to God. Then also Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice Isaac, which was a precursor, right, pointing towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I look at these things, right, these human experiences, and it's interesting that across the board, right, there's this universal experience of guilt. So we talked about everyone's trying to justify themselves. As Kevin DeYoung once preached, he said, the world is awash with guilt. We understand this because we're trying to prove ourselves, and we see this in the sacrificial system. Now, we take this experience, right, this observation that I think all of us, whether believer or non-believer, can agree this is a universal experience, and we take the lens of Scripture, and we place it over these fragmented experiences, these blurry things that we see, these observations, and it brings into focus the reality that we are moral creatures that are accountable to a moral God. And that's what the Bible presents to us. That's why there is guilt. When we place the lens of Scripture over it, we begin to see things that come into focus. And so even though the Jews practice this Levitical system, and I think it's easy to see this and kind of be tempted like, ah, the, I don't really can't relate to this, like sacrificing on altars and grain offerings and the tabernacle and all that, I can't relate to it. I think you can because you're just as guilty as them. And so as we go through this, I think it's important that we understand the sacrificial system that's being talked about in this passage and also to realize just like them, we might be tempted to abandon our faith in Christ for other type of sacrifices or work-based things that we think can justify and prove ourselves. This is a common theme I think we find throughout the scripture. And the pastor here who's writing to these believers, right, he's trying to present, we've talked about how he's trying to showcase to them, why would you go back to something that can't save you? He's trying to say Christ is superior over the angels, right, was the first thing that we talked about. Christ is superior over Moses, Christ is the superior high priest, and Christ is the superior sacrifice. And that's something we're going to really focus in and hone in tonight. So we may not sacrifice bulls and goats on a physical altar to gain acceptance before God or try and justify ourselves, but we do certainly make many other sacrifices on many other altars that we think can justify our existence or make us feel better or justify our standing before God or change us deep within. And we have all these type of systems and habits and rules and things we follow that we think will make us clean before God, but we need a sacrifice that is perfect like Christ to make us redeemed. And so what I want to get across, just like we talk about the American Isle auditions and you come before God, right, and you realize you're not good enough, yet you cannot provide what God needs because of your sin. But here's the point I want to get across. The good news is that what you cannot provide 
God has provided in Christ Jesus. And you may think that's such a simple statement, and it really is, but man, do we have a hard time applying it in our lives. Do we have a hard time embracing that in everyday life? So the first thing I want to do is talk about why sacrifices. I think we need a context to understand why the sacrifices and the sacrificial system was present. The author of Hebrews in, in verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. So the law and the sacrificial system, I'm not trying to say, oh, it has no importance, right? No, it's the context by which the gospel can make sense to us and to the people of Israel. And so what we need to understand is why was the law so important? Why was the sacrificial system set up? I think what he's trying to say here is that it's a shadow of what's to come. It's a rough draft, a preliminary draft of something more final to come. You civil engineers, right? You know, you can't build a building unless you actually have a preliminary draft, right? Now, if you drew up the preliminary draft and went to your client and said, here you go, there's the building, they'd be like, cool, where's it at? <laughs> you know, when's it going to come up? Like, that's great, but now when's it, when is it actually going to be built? And the same way the Old Testament was a preliminary draft, the context for which the gospel to really come into fruition in the New Testament. And so the sacrificial system, I think, is really important. We know that it starts with, right, the Levites who were ordained with mediating these sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. We talked about how God's presence went from the mountain, right, to the tabernacle, how there was a job opening for, you know, the Levites, okay? So, you know, Tobit from the tribe of Benjamin, when his dad asked him who he wanted to be when he grew up, he was like, I want to be a priest. And he's like, nope, you're not a Levite, okay? Only Levites get to do this job. And so they had the Levite priests come, and they were the ones who were ordained by God, sacrifice on behalf of the people on the day of atonement and so that's how it started and this was to secure forgiveness to secure a standing before god and i think it's important to highlight though the reasons why these sacrifices were performed in the old testament and why they still matter to us today because there's certain truths that it highlights that i really want to get into and so there's about five of them that i want to go through so we can understand why the sacrifices are so important and then we'll get into kind of the comparison and contrast of this passage, because the pastor in this letter is going to essentially compare the Old Testament sacrifices with Christ's sacrifice, and to show how much superior it is. But we need to understand why sacrifices were so important in the Old Testament. I think there's a couple things we can walk away. The first one is that the sacrifices reminds us okay, that God's holiness is dangerous. Okay, Now, before you're like, wow, that's a really intense statement here but the sacrificial system does remind us of god's holiness which is dangerous now we've talked about this before the meticulous the tediousness that comes with this ritualism the way the priests had to cleanse themselves the way they were to approach god was precarious right don't touch the mountain don't touch the ark of the covenant only a certain group of people are allowed to go into the holy of holies it's to indicate, right, that there is a danger because we are sinful and God is holy. In the same way that bacteria is in danger of a Clorox wipe, okay? Or a criminal is in danger of law and order. God's not dangerous because he's not good. No, God is dangerous because we're not good. I think, and, and before you get mad at me about saying God is dangerous, just know, like, C.S. Lewis said it first. So, yeah, in the Chronicles of Narnia, right, Lucy's talking to Mr. Beaver, and he asks, he's talking about Aslan, the deity of the land, right? And Lucy asks, 
you know, Mr. Beaver, is, 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 you know, is Aslan safe? No, and, and, and Mr. Beaver's like, Lucy, my dear Lucy, he's a lion, okay? He's not safe, but he is good. And so I think we need to recognize, right, that God's holiness is dangerous, namely because we are sinful, because we're not good. And that's a hard thing to come to grips with, right? Because when we read the Bible, we like to read that we're the protagonist in the story. Whenever we watch a movie like The Avengers, you guys aren't the bad guys, right? I'm not the bad guy. I'm the good guy in the story, right? But the hardest reality is when you read the word of God, we are actually rebels against the protagonist of the Bible. And the sacrifices remind us that's what's going on. The second is it does, once again, remind us not only that God's holiness is dangerous, but that we are guilty before a just God. The sacrificial ex system exists because we are guilty, and there must be payment for our sins. Kind of going into that means that it reminds us that we need a mediator between us and God. That's what the animal represent, that poor goat or bull or whatever was sacrificed, right? They called it the scapegoat, where the sins were placed on the animal. So God's wrath was poured out on the animal. The punishment was poured on the animal and not us. There was a mediator between us and God. That's the point. This is, this, this is all important because it's pointing towards, you know, spoiler alert, but Jesus Christ. The fourth thing is it reminds us that God's righteous justice needs to be satisfied. This is a really hard one that we have to sometimes come to grips with, right? But there does have to be retribution for sins, for evil. There has to be. And you might be like, that doesn't seem fair. Well, I mean, it would be very hypocritical for us to say that because in a court of law, of course we want retribution for wrongdoing. Just, you know, why are you upset with your roommate then when they do something stupid? Retribution, right? Wrongdoing should be corrected. And what we need to realize is that these sacrifices are actually showing us divine forbearance, okay, but they're not completely removing the sin. They're not completely cleansing those people. Romans 3, 24 through 25 states, we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In other words, the blood of bulls and goats allowed for divine forbearance, but it didn't offer complete divine pardon. And again, it allowed for divine forbearance, but it didn't offer complete divine pardon. It wasn't effective for that. But it was pointing, it was pushing off until the time of Jesus Christ to come and offer that single sacrifice that redeem us. But here's the good thing, because we talked a lot about, man, this is really heavy stuff, like God's wrathful against us, right? That's some heavy, heavy stuff to listen to, right? But here's the, the amazing part of Revelation, okay? A special revelation. Why would God bring this to us if all he intended to do was to destroy us and offer no salvation? You see, this sacrificial system reminds us, as scary as it might be, that he does not desire for us to perish. It showcases his grace, his mercy. It showcases his divine forbearance until the time of Jesus Christ that we might be saved. So I think this sacrificial system is him saying, instead of just wiping us all out, which he has every right to do, okay, he is saying, no, I want to have communion with you. But you need to realize, I'm a holy God, and you are an unholy people. You are guilty, okay? You can't, you can't save yourselves. You're not as good as you think you are. 
That's what this system is showing us. But, but, there is a day that's coming when I will make things right. It says when uh, Psalm 85.10 says, love and faithfulness meet together, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Strange image. But the point here, right, is that the faithfulness to God's goodness and justice and the love of God and the mercy of God would meet together where? At the cross. Sacrifice Christ. And so all these things, the sacrificial system, the importance of it is pointing toward what is to come. Now, introduction. But now we're going to get into the actual passage. And the first thing we're going to talk about is the inferiority of the Levitical sacrifices as the offerings of the Lord. The first one is the inferiority of the Levitical sacrifices. Verses 1 through 4, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here... The author is trying to convince them, look, don't turn back to this system, right? It's pointed to something greater, but if you're going to revert back to this, you need to realize it's inferior. It cannot save you. He lists the reasons why. The number one is the sacrifices were continual. They continued every year because they only brought a temporary forbearance for sin. He says this. He says, otherwise, if they were so effective, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed? no longer have any consciousness of sin? Wouldn't the guilt be taken away? Wouldn't there be true freedom if these were really effective sacrifices? But the fact is they're continual. They're repeatable. They're multiple. So, you know, the question is, when does it end? So they're like, no, I'm going to go back to the system. And the pastor's like, well, okay, but are you just going to continue now for sacrifices? When do we get to have actual real communion with God? When is the guilt of sin finally put away with forever? When is there an end here in sight? And that's a really good question for us to ask ourselves when we try to prove or justify ourselves in any other type of way is when does it end? Is it really good enough? The second is that the sacrifices, verse 3, reminded them of their sins. Now, I can tell someone probably in their congregation being like, hold on. It's, it's supposed to remove sins. No. It just reminded you of your sins. It didn't completely remove them. Our uh, Kent Hughes, he's a commentator, he kind of explains that these rituals did not clean the conscience, but instead actually burdened it. It aggravated the conscience. As Paul says, I, the law was necessary for me to know sin, but it didn't make me able to follow the law. It didn't redeem me. It just brought an awareness of how far away I am from God. That's what the Old Testament, that's what the scripture is meant to bring to us is how, how short we fall before the glory of God. And so he's telling them, it, it doesn't remove sins, it just reminds, it aggravates the conscience. Number three, verse four, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Two reasons why. An animal is amoral, okay? Some people might disagree. Those who voted for Harambe, they probably thought he was a really outstanding gorilla. But animals are amoral, right? The other thing, too, is they're not really willing, Okay? If you know, they went to talk to Billy the goat, and Billy the goat could talk, okay? He said, hey, I need you to get up on the altar. 
for my sins. Billy be like, no, go find another goat, okay? These animals weren't willing, okay? They're not perfect. Jesus, on the other hand, was willingly obedient. So it's imperfect. It's an animal. It, you really think God desires an animal to be burned and, and die? No. He wants obedience, which we also see in this passage. Jumping to verse 11. We're kind of skipping over. Don't worry. We'll come back. We'll skip here. It says in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Three words there. Stands daily repeatedly, which tells you his work is never done. That's why there is a succession of priests. We talk about how Christ is the superior priest because he's the last and final one. But back in this system, right, you had to have someone new. When they died, guess what? You had to have a new priest to come in. And they stand. The standing was indicating, especially when you compare it with Christ sitting, that his work was never done. He never sat down and was complete from his work. And so the pastor here is saying, look, do you see the inferiority? These things can't save you. But then he flips to the next, and he says, but let me showcase to you why Christ is superior. Number one, we'll kind of go through, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and read starting in verse uh, five. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings ye have not desired, but a body have ye prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, ye have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings, and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Notice some of the language here is in verse 10. Through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected, this prepositional phrase, for all time, those who are being sanctified. I think what the author here is saying is, it was a single and final sacrifice. That's all that was needed from Christ. Single and final. Never again does there need to be a sacrifice. Never again do we need it. The wrath of God has been satisfied through his sacrifice. It is permanent. The second is that unlike an animal, right, Christ was perfect, okay, in obedience and in willingness. That's the significance of 5 through 7 as they quote Psalm 40 here. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Read your Old Testament, right? All the prophets, you know, King David in the Psalms too. What, what does God not desire? sacrifices. What does he ultimately desire? Obedience. And that's what Christ did. But a body have you prepared for me, referring to Christ's incarnation. Also gives you a hint that Christ is eternal, right? Because he was here before he had a body on earth. But a body have you prepared for me. You don't take pleasure in these burnt offerings and sin offerings. And he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So we failed to do God's will. We failed to fulfill the law. So Christ came and he was able to be the perfect sacrifice because he fulfilled the law in his life and even was obedient 
obedient even unto death. I mean, imagine that, that he was willing to go to the cross for us, but he could have at any moment stepped off. He was still God. He may have limited himself, but he still had every ability and right to step off the cross, but he doesn't because he's obedient to the will of the Father. That's a pretty worthy sacrifice. As Psalm 51 states, as David has said, and we'll, we'll hit this again later and we get into application, for you will not delight in sacrifice for I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Even uh, the prophet Samuel talking to King Saul, he says, God desires obedience, he tells him. Not just the ritual, not just the tradition. He's ultimately looking for heart obedience, which Christ did, because Christ is perfect. And then number three, Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father, and says in verse 12. So unlike the priest that has to stand daily, Christ got to sit down at where? The right hand of the Father, which means the resurrection of Jesus Christ was God the Father saying, yes, worthy, accepted, payment accepted. And his name was given above all other names, right? And he was above everyone. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing now? This is the good part. Because people are like, why is Christ such a great sacrifice? It's a one-time deal. Well, what do you think he's doing currently in his office of high priest? Romans 8, 34, 35 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So he's a mediator, not only a mediator that just dies and then we need a new one for the next year, a mediator who dies, was raised again, and is now pleading on our behalf before God the Father, pointing to his blood, to his scars, to his payment for our former sins, for our current sins, and for the sins that we will commit and struggle with. And the, the pastor, again, is like, why are we going back to the old system again? And number four, this is the greatest part, and we'll get into the application here, the sacrifices Okay, forever, the sacrifice, sorry, of Christ forever removed our sins. Forgotten, not reminded. Okay, the guilt, not crushed even more, not crushing under the burden of guilt even more, but forgotten. In the verse 17, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Cleansed, which is referring to justification. We've been justified before God the Father. But not only does he justify and forgive us, but what does it say in verse 16, or verse 15, we'll start there. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Going back to verse 10 even, he says, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus all. And then in verse 14 even says, for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified, those who have been set apart, those who have been given a new birth, a new heart, a new way of living. So now the law has come from being this outside force that burdens and crushes us to now it's been placed in our heart by faith in Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice to then change us from within. So that now we can actually produce good works. We can be empowered to follow God in full-hearted obedience like Christ. That's because of Christ's sacrifice. 
And I think what we need to realize from this is that we need a Savior not for one time, but for all time. And that's what Christ has accomplished for us. And the sacrifices were imperfect. Now, I think it's important that as we go into application, that we kind of look back, and even though we may not have like a sacrificial system or whatnot, I can't help but think that there are many times when we still try to prove ourselves, okay, we try to justify ourselves, we try to deal with our guilt by maybe just kind of trying to do, shore up our weaknesses with good works, or maybe a habit will kind of change that. Uh, I, I know I've been reading uh, the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits. Everyone, anyone heard that? Nobody? Okay, a few. Yeah, my friends have been talking about it for years. I mean, I think it's been a couple of years it's been out. Um, and I, I don't really like this type of book, but supposedly it's really good. So I, I picked it up on Audible. Um, I had like six credits because I guess I was paying Audible for the last six months. So <laughs> I don't believe in audiobooks. But I got one on there. And I've been listening to it. And it's great. I mean, it's some really great practical stuff. But I'm thinking, man, it's so easy to fall into that trap of thinking, I can better improve myself, right? The answer, the key is just to better habits, right? If I can just get my habits down, my disciplines down. You know, we're even, even listening to pe- great people, and I, I know this is great, but Jordan Peterson, right? Thinking that if I just unearth inside of myself some willpower, right, some sheer perfection, right? If I just change my identity towards what I think will be good, then I can actually perfect myself, improve myself, and, and maybe I can feel better about the guilt or the regret that I have. And many of us, right, in our Christian walk, or maybe those of you who aren't Christians, who aren't believers, right, you're trying to figure out also how to deal with guilt or regret or trying to justify and prove yourself to the world. And the question I want to ask you guys, when does it end? We've talked about striving to enter the rest of God earlier in this passage. We're kind of building on things in the past several, several months, but when does it end? When are we actually going to find rest and redemption? For those of you who are struggling with addictions of some kind or or anger, or emotions, or difficult situations, or broken relationships, right? And you're trying to scrounge out ways, you're sacrificing things to make it work, but you continue to sidestep the gospel of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. So there's some application that I want to encourage you guys as we think about this doctrinal truth of Christ's sacrifice, his superior sacrifice. And the first one, as we've kind of We'll tie back in with the illustration in the beginning is to be humbled, to accept the bad news that you cannot and I cannot provide what God needs. So I'll tell you what, there's many times when I come up to God, right, or maybe for those of you who are unbelievers and you're struggling with coming to grips with this lens, this worldview that explains the world as it is, saying that you're accountable to a moral God, right? We come to God, we come to this scriptural truth as a reflection, and it shows us who we are. And guess what? I don't really like what I see. (laughs) And you probably don't like what you see. Like the judge that stands there and tells you, hey, you're just not good enough. And some of us would prefer to gouge out our eyes. We can't face that humiliation. We can't face that truth. We prefer to live blind and proud than to see and be humbled. That's why I encourage you guys. When we come to the scriptures, right, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility is where we approach God, and we realize there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no amount of blood, sweat, and tears or sacrifices I can make that will make me good before God. Or are you one of those people who just can't? 
you put all your work and investment in identity. You thought maybe I'm farther along and, and you realize you're not. And you're tempted to say, nope, you don't know what you're talking about. God, you don't know what you're talking about. So we run off. The hard work is not trying to be better, guys. The hard work is realizing and admitting you are no better. Some of us can't stand to hear that all of our works, all our investment, all our self-help, all our self-improvement, and our work-based pursuits don't save us. Once again, I push you guys to ask, do you really just want to live proud and die with the sinking ship? Or don't you see that God is offering you his forgiveness? Accepting Christ's sacrifice in faith really means that we are pleading guilty before God. Now, in the court of law, right, if you don't plead guilty, usually you're, you know, you're welcoming an examination. If they find evidence that says you're guilty, your sentencing <laughs> be a lot worse, right? And I really think that as we accept Christ's sacrifice in faith, what we are saying before God is, I am guilty. Lord, I am guilty. I, I have nothing to bring to the table. I cannot save myself. In a sense, we have to come to the truth, the reality that it is better to die a just death than to live an unjust life. And I'll tell you what, from my experience, there's no way on earth I could come to that realization without the work of the Holy Spirit working in my heart. Because no human being <laughs> would ever want to admit that. But I just really want to plead with you guys. Do you really understand that reality? Are you willing to come to God humbly? And this is some heavy stuff, but to the unbeliever, I want to encourage you, like, the only way you're going to be justified according to the scriptures, I'm not saying it, the scriptures are saying it, is through Jesus Christ, okay? As it says here, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What the pastor of this letter was saying to the believers is, look, if you abandon Christ, there's nothing else left. He's it. This is God's terms. This is it. And it's amazing, isn't it? The grace and forgiveness in it. So why would he even run from it? But this is the terms. So I encourage you. I plead with you. Like there is forgiveness and mercy. God wouldn't be bringing this through special revelation if he wasn't sincere with his invitation to you. To the believer, not as you don't get off either. Um, to the believer, I think it's interesting. We'll say, yes, justification right? By faith alone. Justification by faith alone. But then we switch, and sanctification is by works alone. The gospel is just the kickstarter for us. You know, the Holy Spirit's like, there you go. Go grow up, you know, and fly away, and you never need me again. No. We need it from day one throughout all of our life. The gospel is not just a kickstarter for you and me, but it is the lifeblood of everything we do. But sometimes we live in our lives as though, you know, and, and, and I know this, we troubleshoot things, but, you know, when we talk together, you talk with your friends, and maybe you're dealing with addiction, right, or you're dealing with some sin struggle or a, a trial and difficulty, and we talk about how, you know, the, the different habits or the tactics we can use, but what's interesting is it's completely divorced from the gospel. Oh, yeah, let me just change up my habits, because, like, oh, yeah, the gospel is great for justification and, and coming to know Jesus Christ and being saved and fire insurance, awesome, great, and then we try living out the Christian life like unbelievers, and we don't even have faith in continuing in our Christian walk. And I want to encourage you guys, like, are, is that how you're living? Or are you going back to the gospel? Are you going back to the fact that he really does redeem you? We need to let go, number two, is we need to let go of our sacrifices or our works that really don't justify ourselves. 
And sometimes we think that maybe if I get this certain level of perfection or if I do this amount of works, like a, you know, a certain amount of times, like repetition will save me, if I go to church enough times, if I read my Bible enough times, or, you know, if I get into the CCH, I hear that one a big time, like, why do you live in the CCH? Because I don't want to fall away from my faith, like, meaning the only thing that's keeping me close to God is not the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ, but just people around me. If that's the case, then, man, the apostle John must have fallen away after he wrote Revelation, you know, because he didn't have anybody around him. But that's the thing. We, 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 we talk about this, this troubleshooting our issues and our problems, and it's just completely devoid of gospel truth. Are we relying on it? Are we relying on these works? The, the practice makes perfect motto doesn't work here, okay? In fact, I've learned that it doesn't even work in general, according to some psychologists. You know, you can swipe a credit card multiple times. You can keep swiping a credit card, but if there's nothing in the account, it is not going to go through. And that's us. This is going to save me. This is going to save me. This is going to save me. It's like you don't have anything in there. The only thing it says here is the Holy Spirit that can help you and empower you to live out your Christian walk. The law written on our heart and on our minds. The last thing that I want to leave with you guys in terms of application is, yes, God is looking for obedience. He desires obedience. And all of these sacrifices or rituals that maybe we write up in our own life, these rules we come up with that we think makes us better, he wants full-hearted obedience that is motivated by thankfulness and humility. This genuine obedience, though, is impossible without faith in Jesus Christ. And this faith is only possible by first realizing our utter need for a Savior and the imperfections of our works and sacrifices. And the Holy Spirit comes and using the Word of God in spirit and in truth brings to light where we're failing and says, you do need a Savior. You do need to let go of these things. And I think to cultivate genuine obedience, we must reflect. This sounds like, I just want something concrete, right? We want the habit or the task or the, the straightforward application, but we do need to reflect on the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ for us as undeserving sinners. And not just for the beginning, but throughout all of life. So the problem is, if you don't have good works, if you don't have obedience, sometimes what we like to do is, well, I need to do more works, right? Let me try to fix this all up. But we got to go back further and troubleshoot. It's like, well, that means that my faith might be misplaced. In the same way, if someone came up to me, as Wolf came up to me, okay, and he went hiking out in the woods, okay, in this winter weather, I mean, it's getting colder, it wasn't a couple weeks ago, and he says, hey, my, lint, my, my toes are uh, blue and there's no blood circulating through them, okay, and I'd be like, that's a problem, right? Well, how do we troubleshoot that? Well, let's look at your veins and the blood flowing through your, your, your body, and then we go to the heart and we realize your heart's not pumping enough blood, right? And you got frostbite and you got to cut those things off. So, but the thing is, you're troubleshooting and you start with that symptom and issue and then you trace it back to the heart. Your good works and your obedience, if it's lacking, if you're struggling with a sin, if you're struggling with a relationship or, or any issue and you're having a hard time with your faith and trust in God, well, then you go back to where your faith is in. A lot of times we're dealing, we're like trying to fix it and we're like, I got it and it's nothing, nothing's coming. I could tell you this. These are two things I'll leave you with. Because I can tell you <laughs> that any time I struggle in obedience with, to God, okay, there are two things. Nine I'll say 100% of the time is missing. 
two things. I'm speaking from experience here. Every single time, okay? Lack of humility and lack of thankfulness. Every time. I'm not humbled. I think I deserve better. Yeah, Jesus should have died for me. Yeah, I'm really worthy. Number two, because of that, well, then I'm not thankful for what he's done for me. And so then I struggle with full-hearted obedience. But I want to encourage you guys that if we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay, it's the sick that need a doctor. It's the people that can't live faithfully that need a savior. And I plead with you to come to Christ humbly and thankfully and to receive his sacrifice to represent you before God. There is no other offering. I've said this many times before, and man, it, it scares me just saying it too, because I know that by the time God's done with me in this life, right, I'm not going to be a very proud person in heaven. As I've said, there are no proud people in heaven. There are thankful people. I can tell you that when I'm in heaven, I'm not going to be very proud of myself, but I will be thankful. I will be humbled by the sheer love and grace and mercy of God. So somehow, throughout this life and into glory, when you see me in heaven, I'm not going to be a very proud person, but I will be a very thankful person. I pray the same would be for you. So as we look to Christ's sacrifice, where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin, which means we don't have to work for our salvation. We can rest in Jesus Christ's love, grace, and mercy for us. So I plead with you to come to him and to receive the sacrifice to represent you before God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, even for the hard truths that we have to come face to face with, Lord. Uh, but your good news is exactly that, that although we're guilty and sinful and imperfect, that your son, Jesus Christ, was perfect, that his sacrifice was worthy to save us and redeem us. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be humbled by this truth and that we would grow in thankfulness for what you've accomplished on the cross for our sins. Help us, Lord, to lean on you each and every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.